everyone, and welcome back to HOA It's a True Story. Today, we are speaking with a very special guest that I've been trying to get on the show for quite some time, and I'm pleased to have him today. He's a wealth of knowledge and experience, and welcome to our very own founder, Greg Brown, the GB in GB Group. He's speaking with us today on the topic of construction in the HOA industry, what it was like then and now. Thank you for joining us today, Greg, and welcome to HOA It's a True Story. Thank you. So, of course, like everybody, I like to start out with information about your background. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your construction background? Basically, I came up through the trades starting at age 14, wheel in a wheelbarrow. Was that in union or just non-union? Non-union. Wheel in a wheelbarrow full of concrete and taking it wherever I sold to put it digging ditches, spent a couple of summers working for a roofer, carrying buckets of tar, and proceeded to graduate up the ladder to an apprentice carpenter, and finally a carpenter, and went through the union school for the trade. Was this all in California? No, it was, uh, majority of it was in Illinois, but then after I got through the carpentership, I was transferred to Houston, Texas, Denver, Colorado, and Florida. And then Florida to California? And California. So you've worked in a lot of different states under a lot of different regulations. That's correct. Do you think California is one of the most regulated? They are without a doubt the strictest. Yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that. So this year coming up, we are getting ready to celebrate 30 years in the HOA and multifamily industry. What made you decide to go into the HOA? Because when you were doing those other jobs that was not in HOA, is that correct? That's correct. We started out, I started out with small buildings back in my beginnings and graduated to what I call superstructures. An example is a 76-story building in Houston, Texas, Texas Commerce Tower Bank, where we had I had 2,200 men that reported directly to supervisors that reported directly to me. Well, thank so, God we don't have that many now. <laughs> it's a scheduling thing. I bet. So then what ultimately led into HOA? I was getting ready to have twins in the company I was working for, wanted me to go to Louisville, Kentucky. My wife had a small company in San Diego and she was not about to go to Louisville, Kentucky when her family all lived in California. So hence I had to go look for a job. Found a job with a construction management firm out of Santa Clara. And ultimately I went to work for them as director of field operations. After being as a director, it was very hard to find contractors that would do what they said they would do and when they were going to do it. The repair industry is not rocket science. It's doing what you say, when you're going to do it, and doing it, and doing a good job at it. So that made you decide to leave the construction management company and, and start a well, like I said, it was very hard to find contractors that would do what they said. And to me, that was your basic rule was you say you're going to do it, follow through, do it, do a good job at it. It's a reasonable price. So I started GB Group. We have seen so many companies come and go over our 30 years. What do you think attributes to the success of GB Group being in business for that length of time? Common sense, the ability to, again, do what you say you're going to do when you're going to do it. 
uh, do a good job at it, reasonable price. Ethics. A lot of small companies, very easy to say, I can do that and I'm going to start a company. But to have all the ins and outs with the accounting and the cash flow and all the other entities that are involved in the business, a lot of guys find out real quick, it's a lot more difficult to manage than what they thought. I think one of the things that I learned is you're right, you have to take care of taxes and so many other things. And they they just see the income from the job. They don't really see all the overhead expense. But uh, the one of the things that I think I really saw too was a, you have to have a real work ethic to stay after this. And more than just hammering nails or doing some minor repairs, you have to stand behind your work and go back and fix stuff when the guys don't do it right. That's correct. And that's going to happen. You're dealing with human beings and you can have a conversation with somebody and you're both on the same page and you come back two days later and you're on different pages. What happened in those two days? No teller. Mm -hmm. But it's not what you talked about. Mm -hmm. So then it's a matter of go back, do it again, fix it. So going back to the beginning in the early 90s, I guess, and then all the way into the uh, 2000s, what were some of the things that the way construction was done back then that isn't happening now? What, what kind of can you remember from then to now? Well, I can relate to a couple incidences where we were on large projects and the building inspector did what we call a drive-by. Never got out of the car, never went and looked at what he was supposed to look at. And you walked out to the car with your building permit and he'd sign the car. And now it's gotten to a point where the building inspectors do still inspect and very rarely will you get a drive-by. But a lot of these people don't have any idea what they're looking at. They don't know if it's right, wrong, or indifferent, and they really don't care because they have no liability. So back then, they, they didn't do a deep dive in the inspection, which probably led to some of the litigation that we currently see in our industry. But then at the same time, you're saying it really hasn't changed because the inspectors, even if they go out there, they're not is qualified and they just don't they don't care. have any liability they have no liability you're getting paid as a government employee and you're getting paid well but you have no liability so even if you make a mistake or many mistakes it doesn't matter they can shut down a job because they don't understand the code or because they're misinterpreting the code and that's that causes a lot of cost and a lot of time now, you started out in a construction management oversight area. Do you think there's still a need for construction managers? Yes, and only because I say that because if you've got a good qualified contractor, he's going to know what to do. But you need that buffer, a third party independent between the contractor and the board. When you sign a contract with a board, it's like signing a marriage agreement. Because for that period of time and that duration of that job, you are literally married. You talk to each other, you sign checks and hand them back and forth. It's, it's a marriage. So back in the day with the construction manager, they used to do bids in front of everybody, right? It bid openings, sealed bid openings. Yes, he would come to a table, the contractors that are bidding the job, they would open the bids. Uh, they 
would read out the numbers. Now this is all subject to verification. There's always a chance that there's a math error or contractor didn't quite understand the scope, so you'll get a variance in the same line item going across. But you're told right then and there who's the low bid based on everything else being okay. And boards used to do things like take out the high and the low and go with the middle bid. That's true. Totally, before you even get to a bid, you've been pre-qualified. So you've got three, four, five bidders that are pre-qualified that should all know what they're doing. And it made logical sense that the high bid had too much in it or was making too much profit. The low bid forgot something or several items. And usually the reality of it was the middle bid was, or the middle bids were the best go. And at that point, if you had three bids, which were close, then you had the board interview process where the board interviewed the contractors and you were able to talk about the work that you bid, how you were going to run the job, the logistics of the job, and move on from there. So how do you think, fast forwarding to today, technology has changed construction? Has it made a big difference, do you think? I mean, we're talking 30 years. A lot of it's changed. When I was starting out, as I said, I, I worked two summers for a roofing company, and my job was to carry two five-gallon buckets of hot tar to where they're putting the, the felts down for the roof. That tar was called pitch, and it had a chemical called creosote in it. So in the middle of summer, you were long sleeves, gloves, hats, and a thing called Husser's cornlake lotion <laughs> all over your face, about a half inch thick. <laughs> and yet you still got skin burns from this pitch or the creosote. That's illegal now. But it was an interesting process to get rid of it because you had to boil potatoes, peel them, and then the starch and potato would take it out of your skin. Oh my gosh. But is that the same stuff they use in pressure treated lumber? Yes. Which is now illegally, right. you, you can't Correct. dispose it, right? So these so, are <laughs> an interesting process. Not enough potatoes to get that stuff out. The, uh, the overall progression, they've come up with a lot of new products, a lot of very good products that are not harmful. You just got to know the application and what the manufacturer is warranting. Has stucco changed much? It has on the final coats. It's still a three-coat process. And some of the stuff they thought was really good didn't turn out to be so good. You still got the scratch brown and finished coat. The finished coats have changed. They're more water resistant. They're more weather resistant. The scratching brown is still the same process. Well, like outside exteriors, you have hardy or cementitious types of siding that have really come a long way for... 30 years ago, you didn't have that at all. Yeah. So there's definitely some, and and probably concrete has had a lot of changes. Concrete's had an amazing amount of change. Um, you look at the different high-rise structures. I can relate back to the Texas Commerce Tower in Houston. We had 28 mixed designs where they had different kind, types of concrete, whether it be a 10,000 PSI or a 2,000 PSI. But we had all these different mixed designs with chemical additives for stiffening it quicker, getting rid of the water quicker. And nowadays, it's even more so. How has the cities and counties and government, basically, how have they made changes in their world that affect our 
construction project efforts? The cities themselves, the permit process is very slow. Again, you're looking at two-dimensional paper and trying to put a three-dimensional building. So when they go through and do a plan check, they're spending a lot of time looking at detail, looking at plans. And in reality, field conditions are going to dictate what happens. And after this plan check, then you go to permitting. And once it's permitted, you end up with individuals that are hired by the counties that really don't know what they're looking at. I won't say all of them, but there's a lot of them. It's a very minor test to take an ICBO test, pass it, get your building inspector's license. I think one of the things we're really seeing more now is the problems with fees changing. Some counties are really strict about things like lead testing and asbestos. Others don't look very carefully at all. You go to a place like Sacramento and you can't even pull a permit until you've received a clearance from the, I think it's the air quality or air commission, something like that. But, you know, each of the counties have, have adopted so many rules that are not consistent that you really have to know what county, what county you're in and what fees, because the fees just keep going up and up and up. And you have no idea. There isn't a written checklist that you go through to say, in this county, I need this, 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 and this, because it'd be very simple to do that. They expect you to know, and if they change stuff, very rarely do you get notification yeah. that it's changed. Well, and now with the labor shortage, you know, actually, Bill and I have been talking about the labor shortage since 2017, and then as the pandemic hit and everybody got shut down for a minute, it was very hard to revamp and re-get momentum with hiring again and getting people back to work. They're still struggling with getting people back to work, but we see that as an impact in the HOA projects as well. It's definitely a concern and a problem. A lot of guys, because they can drive a nail, think they're a carpenter. The quality of work until you get the guy on the job, doesn't matter what his resume says, until you get him on the job and actually watch his qualifications, mm -hmm. You have no idea. That's why the turnover is so high. Well, with the supply chain and material shortages that are out there, do you think that boards should wait? Or do you think they should try to forge ahead with projects? I think they should forge ahead. And the reason I say that is because normally when prices go up, they may come back down a little bit, but they're never going to come back down to where they were. They're going to continually go up. So what can a board do if they want to engage a contractor, but they're concerned about price creeping or they're concerned about not getting a credit back if the prices should come back down? That's something you negotiate with your contractor and construction manager up front is that if there's a turn in costs because the same way if the prices go up, the contractor is going to be the first one to say, hey, I got a 10% increase in concrete. We didn't bid it at this cost. We need to get the difference. Or if lumber is a major commodity on the job, we bid it at this, and now the lumber is down here. And the construction manager should be able to kind of keep track of what's going on in the industry. One of the challenges I have seen us have is we used to give pricing that held for 30 days, right? right? 
And some of these counties and cities are taking so long to get permits and review of drawings and these sorts of things that we can't hold those pricings for 30 days. Those days are gone. Those days are gone. They, uh, by the time you get through plan check and permitting, it can be 120 days. Or more. Or more. We have some that we've been sitting on for o- almost eight months. Which I don't know how anybody can hold their price eight months. We can't. So, I mean, we've, we've submitted change orders with the contract because we're stuck waiting on these companies yeah, and Your construction manager comes into play because he can go look up the indexes and see what the, the changes are in the cost. So if you could change one thing about today's work world and construction for these HOAs, what would it be? I think the learning process. There used to be trade schools, trade the unions. Uh, unions. And you can't just pick up a hammer and call yourself a carpenter. You need to go through some type of training. You need to learn how to read blueprints. Most of the people cannot read blueprints. So there's a lot of open-ended areas. So that's why the general contractors rely so heavy, heavily on our superintendents. But it's the learning curve and the education process is definitely a factor major factor in the quality of guys you're getting. Well, I think to that point, it's one of the reasons why construction manager oversight is still important to make sure that plans are being drawn correctly. But I'll tell you, sometimes the stuff we're handed is even garbage. Garbage. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Okay. Well, the name of the podcast is HOA. It's a true story. So this is your opportunity to share a story or two with us, uh, especially being in the industry 30 years. I imagine you have a couple of them. Quite a few. Uh, two come to mind right off the bat. There was a day that I went to Home Depot in my early days of GB Group where I was still picking up materials at six o'clock in the morning and <laughs> taking them to the job site at seven. And a gentleman with a brand new pickup truck was loading big concrete blocks in the back of his truck. And he came up to me and he said, hey, Mr. Brown, you don't remember me, do you? I said, vaguely. And he said, well, I hurt my back, quote unquote. And thanks to the settlement, I got through workers' comp. I was able to start my own company. Now, obviously, his back couldn't hurt too bad because he was loading concrete block. That weighed, you know, 30 pounds. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so it, that was one. It stuck out where the, the employee knowingly committed fraud so that they could get the money out of the insurance and exactly yeah so the second one was is we were on a large hoa project and a lady hires an attorney the attorney calls my office so i speak to him and he said we're filing a lawsuit for thirteen thousand dollars and i questioned him as to why and what was the problem and he said the lady had a chihuahua that ate a roofing staple. Oh, well, we're not roofers. Well, we're not <laughs> roofers. We have roofers on the job. Okay. But we don't use staples. Industry, no, no. They use nails. Now, if it had been a nail, there would have been some type of, maybe there's a possibility. But a staple? No. So anyhow, long story short, we ended up going to court, and the judge ruled 
insufficient evidence and they, they couldn't prove the case. But it saved us $13,000 from having dog surgery. And of course, the listeners all want to know, was the dog okay? The dog was fine. <laughs> it came out of its stool and it was fine. Well, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate you sharing some of your history and knowledge with us. And if anybody has any questions or would like more information, as always, you can reach us at inquiry at gbgroupinc.com and we're happy to pass that on. Greg, I want to thank you again for thank you. sharing with us. Have a great day.